Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us. Today, think back. If you had lost your eyesight, went blind, would you have stopped drinking? If an alcohol-induced stroke then paralyzed half your body, would you have stopped then? And if, while being both blind and paralyzed, you had alcoholic seizures, would that be enough to give up drinking? My guest, Chuck B., kept drinking through blindness, paralysis, seizures, and chronic pain. The powerful disease of alcoholism had prevailed over all of the medical reasons for quitting, providing its own perverse justification for continued drinking amidst all Chuck's problems. Finally, in the fall of 2007, facing certain demise, Chuck had had enough. His desperate cry for help finally broke the stranglehold of his alcoholism long enough for him to get sober and find AA. Now, 13 years later, Chuck still lives with blindness, paralysis, and constant physical pain, but his life has actually been enriched through working the 12 steps of AA. His solid program of meetings, sponsorship, service work, fellowship, and prayer provides a brilliant example of how to live sober through daily challenges and adversity. Chuck is one of my heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hope he'll become a new hero to those who hear him today. By the way, the Zoom audio is a little glitchy, but the quality of the interview itself can't be beat. So, Ignore the glitches and enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my good friend, Chuck B. My name is Chuck B., and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Chuck. I'm honored to be a part of this. Well, I'm honored and grateful to you for agreeing to do this today. You've celebrated 13 years in November. Yeah. So I'm trying to think when it was that you first started coming to Sunday night, the meeting. I started November 20th uh, going to the treatment center, mm-hmm. continued for 13 weeks and on into January. And about the first night, the, my first meeting after the uh, treatment center, I met one of my sponsors, mm-hmm. Jim M. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he reached out to me and said, well, you're visually impaired, and so why don't you, uh, I'll come by your house, and I'll pick you up and bring you to the Sunday night meeting, which is what he did for almost a couple of years, doing a lot of service work, his part. So you and I have known each other since you came in. Of course, Jim M., your sponsor at the time, is a very close friend of mine, and uh, he's he's having his own struggles these days, uh, unfortunately, but... Uh, We all wish him well. We miss him in that meeting. So I've gotten to know you over the years, kind of little bits at a time, when I would hear you share, when we greet each other at the door, maybe after the meeting. We've talked by phone now and then. But as is often the case with a lot of different people I know in the program, I've gotten to know them really, really well, five minutes at a time. I'll see them in the same meeting every week for a number of years, but there are certain parts of their story that I never get to hear unless they go and do a speaker meeting or unless we sit down together and uh, learn a little bit more about each other's backgrounds and that sort of thing. So I wanted what you and I do today to be kind of a conversation between the two of us so I can get to know you a little bit better and that hopefully those people who listen to this will feel like they know you as well and uh, what you have to share with your experience, strength, and hope, I think will be important uh, to everyone. So what do you remember about your early years uh, as a kid at home? Well, I, I was born in Montreal, Canada, mm-hmm. and my dad was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He later di- died of alcoholism mm-hmm. late in his life, and um, that was my family of origin. I'm the youngest of four siblings. Mm-hmm. Um I followed my father's path and, and my oldest brother's path into alcoholism. Was there alcohol in the house when you were a, a child? Yes, always. Did you ever sneak a drink here or there? When was your first ex- exposure? I'm going to guess maybe I was about seven or eight years old. Mm-hmm. My brother and I were given small cordial glasses full of wine mm-hmm. during the holiday uh, feasts. Mm-hmm. And that was our first exposure to, to alcohol. and 
I like that nice warm feeling that it would give me down my tummy. And <laughs> that was my first exposure to it. Mm-hmm, and, uh, mm-hmm. and it became like a, a rites of passage to graduate into my older brother's footsteps and yeah. follow through on, on drinking more, learning how to drink like a gentleman, so to speak. How much older was your brother than you? 10 years old. He was 10 years older than you? Uh-huh. So you did really have a big, big brother to look up to, didn't you? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my brother's well, about eight years older than I was, but I always felt like I didn't really know him as a kid. Um, how well did you get to know your older brother? On and off, he he went away uh, to college, and uh, mm-hmm. because of his carrying on and partying, he didn't quite make it and got kicked out. Oh my! That was in Waterloo, Ontario. Uh huh. What was the response from your parents to that when that happened? My father didn't care. He just wanted him to get a job and work. Uh huh. My mother was very embarrassed because the. Uh, my grandfather paid for his his tuition education. Uh-huh. That was a big embarrassment for my mother. Hmm. So as the youngest of four, your brother, he was the oldest of the four? Yes. Yeah, my sister, who is nine years older than I am, and uh, I have a brother whom I'm very close to, who's about a year and a half older than I am right okay. now. Okay, so the two of you were, were close in, the, in your family of origin? Yes. Mm-hmm. Most people don't go from their first experience as a kid into drinking all the time just because it's impractical and there are a lot of other reasons for that. But when was your first experience with alcohol where it was totally your choice whether or not you drank? Well, by the time I got into high school, um, Mm -hmm. I belonged to the teen club at at this church and we go there on Friday nights and uh, Uh through peer pressure and whatnot and some of my friends would go out and pick up a case of beer, hide behind the statue of Mary at the Catholic Church and, and drink mm-hmm. some beer down. And so that that was the routine on Friday nights. And, and the effect? Oh, I loved it, yeah. I loved the taste of it. And mm-hmm. So you're one of those that's in the camp of you drank, you enjoyed it, you wanted to do it again and again and again. Uh-huh. Yes, by the time I got 18, if we can fast yeah. forward to that, the legal drinking age up in Canada at that time was 18. Mm-hmm. So by the time I was 17 or going into 18, it, I was allowed into taverns at 18. Groceries and, and so that was like a rites of passage. You just naturally blossomed in, in alcoholism during those years. Yeah, I get that. So people drink for a lot of different reasons when they start drinking. Uh, you know, one is to fit in like what you were talking about, but... Others find that the alcohol changes their mood or makes them feel less lonely or less fearful. Uh, what was your main desire to drink when you were younger? Well, I was a very shy and quiet, very bashful, backwards kind of a kid growing up. Mm-hmm. And hard to make friends in high school and, and mm-hmm. whatnot. So when I first was exposed to the beer at the teen yeah. club, it made me strong and powerful and charming and Mm-hmm. And then once in high school, mm-hmm. at, at the at the uh, we would have a a dance. I was on the student council and would make arrangements to, for the pick out the band and all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my good friend and I, he had access to a bottle of brandy. He says, "Hey, let's uh, get together and we'll mm-hmm. drink some of this stuff before we go to the <laughs> dance, and we'll be able to hit on the girls and." That'll be a great idea. And I said, yeah, I'm in. So we did that. And, and since it was brandy, it was a very powerful. I wasn't used to that level of alcohol. And this. we got into high school in the building and the heat of the building, we started, my head started spinning and, uh, and I went straight to the bathroom, of course. And somebody must have reported me to the, to one of the teachers who was super chaperoning and, and he confronted me and asked me, asked me why I came to school and that, in that kind of condition mm-hmm. and uh he was a cool head cool kind of guy and i thought i could uh just get away with it and, but i couldn't because i was so sick that he brought me upstairs to the teacher's lounge mm. where i continued to throw up and uh eventually i was passing out they were trying to keep me awake and ask me what i had drunk what i had consumed and all that because they were trying to figure out what to do with me mm-hmm. later on about an hour later or so, uh, I was carried home. Hmm. 
upstairs to my bed where I sobered up uh, till the next morning. So what were the consequences of that when, when all that occurred? Well, they threatened to kick me off the student council and they threatened to cancel all the dances for the remainder of the year. And so I was, well, devastated because all my friends in high school, I, I was going to be the one responsible for canceling the dances and the entertainment for the rest of the year. But that didn't happen. I, I uh-huh. uh, talked to the vice principal and managed to uh, convince him that I was truly remorse and apologetic about it. And would he please reconsider, et cetera, et cetera. And he continued on. And I was stayed on the student council. And Wow. So how long did you stay on that straight and narrow path that was established through that remorseful attitude? Well, I would still drink uh, occasionally some beer. And we there was a corner grocery store where we would, my brother Clarence and I would order beer. Mm-hmm. We could get on the phone, say, send me a case of Molson. And, uh, mm-hmm. and they'd show up at the door in less than 10 minutes with a case of Molson. So we continued on that path into my past 18 and and uh, where I, I my brother and I would share a bottle of bourbon for hmm hmm that sounds almost too easy to just be able to call up on the phone and have a case of beer delivered <laughs> that, must, that must have made it really easy to drink huh and after moving to Houston two years and I was down here for two years I went back up and I ordered it case of beer from the grocery man and the guy would recognize your voice and say and within 10 minutes i'd have my beer <laughs> he wouldn't even ask who i was or what kind of beer i wanted to eat snoop. oh so that's up in montreal now montreal being a, a french oriented city was drinking and alcohol more acceptable uh than in other places that you've been I would say so. I, I think moving to Houston in May of 74 was a real culture shock for me. Uh-huh. The people were totally different about just about the norms and the moral mores down here. So you you got out of uh, high school. What was the next uh, milestone that, that, you, that you encountered? My school counselor managed to uh, talk me into going to junior college. Uh-huh. I really didn't have any direction at that time. My father wasn't. Mm-hmm. He was. He loved me, but didn't really give me much direction as to what yeah. I should. What his idea of getting an education was to join, join the army and get an education and be part of the military. And um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but junior college opened up a whole new uh, avenue of friendship and socializing because we it, yeah. it was a a tavern right across the street from the school school campus where we would convene and just drink up there on almost every day. Wow. So that made it easy as well. You know, before we go too much further, Chuck, I'd like to go back and kind of revisit, if you don't mind, um, your, your dad, as you were growing up, you mentioned that, that he was an alcoholic. Uh, Can you, can you shed a little bit more light on your dad and what it was like growing up having a father who was an alcoholic well he would come home every evening and he'd get home late because he started to stay out late and uh uh-huh. uh and he would drink and um and he was okay uh i mean he was a bully that's uh-huh. he parented uh, us and uh uh-huh. so it was either his way or the highway and um i get it I don't know if he ever went to an AA meeting or not, but he came up with this slogan that he used to tell us, to thine own self be true. <laughs> I think he took that to heart and decided, well, I'm gonna, I'm an alcoholic and I'm going to drink no matter what. Yeah. There are those people out there who actually enjoy the moniker of being an alcoholic. Sounds like he he might have been one of them, or he just happened to read Shakespeare and and pick that up along the way. So things were kind of were things pretty rough uh, growing up as a result of his alcoholism. Well, like I mentioned, he was a bully, a bully, especially to my sister, who still mm. resents him t- today to this day. Oh my! Wow. So we towed the line basically, and uh, but when I was involved in the teenage club. Uh, I picked up guitar. He bought me my first guitar and, and sent me to have lessons. So I, mm-hmm. I was very grateful to him for doing that because mm-hmm. guitar is a very big part of my life even today. And mm-hmm. I started a, band, a garage band and played at the teen club for years. And 
So he wasn't a bad guy. He just drank too much. Yeah. And your mom, where was she while all this was going on? She was a quiet, very demure, demure dedicated housewife. And, and mm-hmm. So so she would overlook your dad's drinking? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He tried to calmly mm-hmm. tell him to slow down and take it easy, but yeah. that didn't help. It's always rough when you're a kid and, and your your dad is acting one way and your mom doesn't intercede. I know it was that way where, when I was growing up. My dad was a rager and my mom, though, she was just you know, kind of like yours in the background. But I, I never had the experience of her seriously interceding in either you know beatings or verbal abuse. Uh, and that's kind of unfortunate, but... That's just the way it turned out for me. So when you left home, were you were you glad to get away from that, or, or was that an escape for you? It, it was an escape. I think we all tried to manage to get away from uh, Davidson Street. That was the name of the street we grew up on. And my sister, mm-hmm. by the way, she resented my dad for his drinking, and yeah. he tried to get give us – she gave us a book one year, Children of the Adult, Adult Children of Alcoholics. Right. I kind of tossed it to the side saying, I'm never going to be like my dad. Mm-hmm. So you got to junior college. Uh, you were still living at home at the time? Yes, I was. How long did you do in ju- uh, junior college? Was that a two-year program? It was or? a two-year program. Uh, I barely got through it, and the last semester I had dropped out because a very good friend of my oldest brother, a good friend of the family, gave me an opportunity to move down to Houston because mm. I wasn't going getting anywhere in my junior college and go to school down down here and mm-hmm. get an education and life would happen for me. Hmm. So in 1974 you moved down to Houston. Those were the uh those were the boom days, weren't they in Houston? Yes, they were. So what sort of work did you get into when you came down here? I was working part-time for an automotive parts distributor because that's where Mm -hmm. I was able to get a job there and and then Mm. get into U of H, not because of my grades, but because it it was the South Texas Junior College at the time. Mm -hmm. And the University of Houston bought it that summer. I I took a couple of summer classes, and the University of Houston bought the campus, and I immediately became part of U of H that way. So I kind of went in through the side door. Hmm. And how did that work out? It was a struggle, but I didn't graduate with a very high GPA, but I finally got through it with the discipline of this friend who, who made me do it. And a mm-hmm. lot of perseverance on my part, I finally graduated. Yeah. You had the degree, was that a, like a bachelor's degree? Mm-hmm. Were you drinking the entire time while you were going to school down in Texas? No, because I would work part-time during the daytime. And, and uh, we had a five o'clock rule where we wouldn't start drinking. He'd come home from his office and uh, regulate me to two bourbon and waters per day. Uh. <laughs> and that was the end of it until I studied that night and I'd drink some beers. Wow. So you were staying with him at that time? Yes. You and he had your own little pact about drinking that you adhered to, huh? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's good. That must have made it a little bit easier to get through school. Yeah, I also learned how to, I did in my own research, uh, figured out how to get uh, uh, over a hangover real quick, and that is, I took two semesters of phys ed uh, or swimming, <laughs> swimming, and I'd be jumping at yeah. eight o'clock in the morning. That clear up the <laughs> Did you have problems with hangovers or blacking out? Yeah, hangovers. Not so much blacking out uh, then. It was much later on in the years that I would have blackouts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But. A cold dip in the pool was enough to kind of shake the cobwebs out the next morning, huh? Mm -hmm. So you had the five o'clock rule, and you were doing the bourbons. Would you say you were a social drinker at that time, or? or... I thought I was. And I had this thing that I was, hey, I was a a Canadian, so I have to hold up my my part of the legacy, so to speak. We're calling us drinkers up there, so that's my heritage. The heritage is where I was looking for 
So at what point did you uh, start to lean towards the alcoholism that you had grown up with in your home? Well, I was, uh, I was 21 at the time that I moved to Houston, and I was still a very shy, quiet person. And until I started to gush, that was the days when the urban cowboy uh, uh, culture was coming out in Houston, and I, I started to go to, uh, to nightclubs, uh-huh. Gillies and the Winchester Club, where eventually at the Winchester Club, I met my wife, and we got married, and mm-hmm. I continued on with my drinking, much to her disappointment. I went to work for this company, and my work colleagues, uh, they all wanted to go out and have some fun, so they invited me to join them on Thursday night beer bus night. Big mugs of beer, big pitchers of beer. You know, those places never made it very easy to not drink a lot. Uh, true. <laughs> were you engaging in any of the um, activities there? Did you ride the bull? Were you doing any of the country western dancing? One time I did. Uh, uh, some of my colleagues uh, kind of put me up to uh, riding the bull at Gillies. And, How'd you do? Uh, not very well. I managed <laughs> to stay uh, on the bull less than eight seconds. And he th- I was thought I was doing good there for a bit. And then, boom, he twisted that the animal one more time and I went flying off and fell on on my left side and I couldn't breathe for about a whole minute practically because I was it punched the air out of me. How about the country dancing and that sort of thing? Did you ever get into that? Oh yeah, all the two-step dancing and the Cotton Eye Joe and that was the big popular dance at the time and you know, when I moved down to Texas, I I used to go to those places from time to time, but I never learned how to do any of those dances and <laughs> Uh, you know, to to this day, my wife, when we go to weddings and things, she, where they're doing that kind of dancing, she's got to pick out a cousin or somebody else because I I just <laughs> never learned how to do it. But uh, so I instead I would go to the the urban bars in town where I could just do the jump up and down type dancing, which worked pretty well for me, especially the drunker I got. You mentioned earlier that one of the reasons you drank was to get through your shyness. Did you find that to be the case while you were frequenting the bars? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I actually would approach some girls, some women there and ask them to dance and get their phone numbers and uh, um, and had a series of different girlfriends along the way. and. Uh, one thing would lead to another, and uh, I would have a good time. That was my goal every time I went out. Uh, and But typically what would happen is I'd get beyond the sociable point to the kind of uh, messy point or the s- slobbering, slurring point, and I was no longer effective at picking up girls. There, I, I always seemed to pass that line way too quickly. It was always because I would have a few shots before I'd even go out for the evening, because I like to arrive already plugged in, you know what I mean? Did you ever do that? I stayed away from the shots, because I, I kind of knew I wanted to drink like a gentleman, so to speak, and uh, uh-huh. I would take an even flow of the beer and uh, stay away from the shots because I knew that I'd have to drive home so I'd try to be careful about that because I had been stopped a, a couple of times leaving the Winchester Club give a field sobriety test and were, were you involved in marijuana or any of the other recreationals at that time? Not, not while I was in Houston I think I smoked once in Houston and uh, I was driving my friend's car and uh, I ended up hitting a curb and lost a hubcap and I was kind of paranoid. It made me feel paranoid. So I said, I don't think I can handle that. So I'll stick okay. with booze. So booze was your ticket. Yeah. I get it. So you met your wife when you were 27 mm-hmm. and you were still drinking. When you guys met or when you started dating or after you got married, did she say anything to you about your drinking? After we got married, we got married. I was 28. Then sometimes she tried to tell me, aren't you think you're drinking a little bit too much? And and I said, no, man, I'm Canadian. I, I, <laughs> I kind of played that car, card a little too often. Oh, you did, huh? Well. And eventually she told me that uh, I think you you got a problem and you need to go see somebody. My, the company she worked for offered that at, as a benefit. Those were back in the days when uh, the health plans were just starting to cover yeah. Uh, recovery and 30, you know, they'd give you 30 days towards uh, treatment and that sort of thing. I was, I think I was 28 when my wife and I got married as well. And oh. 
she would say something to me about my drinking and I always used to say, you know, you've got me confused with someone else. I'm not an alcoholic while I'm falling down and slurring and getting sick and all that other stuff. And uh, I don't think she would have put up with me much longer than she did when I finally got sober. But sounds to me like you were hearing that right after you got married. So what were the next number of years like until you actually got to the point where you decided it was a problem? Well, I never would admit to it, and I was bound and determined that I was going to not stop drinking, and that's that's a part of me, and that's just the way it was going to be. So I was really mm. kind of stretching the marriage a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was tense sometimes because she'd always uh, confront me about that, that issue all the time, and I got to be a drag. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the years went by. Uh, we got married Started having children. Mm-hmm. And how many kids have you got? Three daughters. Three daughters and six grandchildren. Congratulations on that. That's quite a handful. So you had the three daughters. How far apart in age are they? About a year and a half apart from each other. Did your kids have to see you while you were drinking and drunk and that kind of thing? On a daily basis because I had my routine where at 5 o'clock I would uh, start to make the salads. I I I had a choice early on. I would make dinner, clean the kitchen, and she would do bath and bedtime duty with the kids. Wow. So she was upstairs taking care of that. and then Sounds like you got off easy, Chuck. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) uh, One of the birthdays one year, I was riding my bicycle, and my daughter had loaned her bike out to one of her guests at the birthday party. And uh, Mm -hmm. so I had her sit on the crossbar of the bicycle, and... I was riding up and down. I had started to drink early that day, and uh, boom, her, one of her feet got caught in the spokes of the front wheel of the bike, oh. and that stopped us instantly, and I did a 180-degree alley-oop and fell oh. back back in my head, giving me a, a concussion. She had a split lip. She was okay, but... Mm-hmm. So you, you were not... Were you knocked out? Yeah, knocked out just for a few seconds ended up going to the hospital and they treated me for they checked out my head and vitals and all that and they ended up starting to take blood pressure medicine that night after that blood pressure medicine related to that or just so happened that they would happen because i was drinking quite a bit during those days i would hide the the booze that I, i consumed at home so that in my closet so i would even mix my drinks in my closet thinking that maybe my wife wouldn't see how much I was consuming. Did she ever give you feedback later on about what she knew and didn't know about your drinking at that time? She would, but I I still kept trying to blow her off. And then after that bicycle accident, uh, within eight months, I started to lose my eyesight. I became visually impaired. And at the end of nine months, I lost my eyesight where I couldn't drive anymore. I was heading down the West Loop one day and uh, i was blind in one my left eye and uh-huh. and i i was going into a panic because i was felt like the uh, blindness was going to my right eye as well and i was trying to maneuver the traffic to like get off safely and i was just following the traffic and moving lane to lane to like oh, off at san felipe mm-hmm. and then i managed to uh work my way over to greenway plaza by making a series of strategic turns. When I got to Greenway Plaza, I just grabbed my steering wheel and I screamed mm. out my lungs and I, I just yelled for God help. Mm. And I called my, picked up the, my cell phone, called my wife and told her, I said, I'm at the end of the road. I can't drive anymore. How old were you when that, when that happened? 44 years old, something like that. Wow. So between the time you got to Houston and 44, you were drinking steadily that whole time. Mm-hmm. Now, what was the diagnosis about your eyesight? Did you have any inclination that that was your eyesight was going or no? And it was on my mother's side of the family, and I was really was never aware of blindness on my mother's side. She never talked about it or didn't give me a clue. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, it was a rare disease called Leber's disease. Hmm. I wasn't able to pass it on to my children because it's only passed to the female Y chromosome. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, they had a hard time trying to diagnose it until I finally got to a neuro-ophthalmologist in the medical center who said, yeah, you got 
let's do a DNA check and uh, uh, took the blood sample and sent it off. And then at six o'clock on my belly button birthday, which was New Year's Eve, Mm -hmm. Uh, He called me and says, uh, your DNA came back and it tested positive for levers. And I should caution you. I still only had still had one good eye left. And he Mm -hmm. should caution you that it it will go into your right eye. So I kind of blew it off or didn't blew it off, didn't exactly blow it off. But I kind of didn't pay much attention to it. And I said, well, I can still see with one eye. I can still work and and, uh, drive. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Within six weeks, uh, I was driving down the West Loop when that incident happened, and I mm. blinded both eyes. Wow. That had to be tough at the time. Yeah, and, um, of course, at that time, um, alcohol was my solution to everything. And I figured, well, I can always hire somebody to do some of my work for me. I, I had that bit a business at the time working on laser printers with supplies and, and mostly repair. So I would assume that's a eyesight intensive type work. Absolutely. And so I had trained an employee on oh, how to repair uh, the printer. So I, I had a lot of confidence in his ability, but as time would go by, I did that for about three years and hired a couple of technicians to carry on the business. But at the end of the three years i said this isn't going to work we're going to go to hell in a handbasket if we don't i said i made a decision to sell the business and during that time i was drinking heavy because uh, as i mentioned a minute ago that uh alcohol was my solution as long as i had my booze isolation at home mm-hmm. all i needed was somebody to help me get some mm-hmm. booze and i mm-hmm. used my employees sometimes so my brother-in-law would get me a case mm-hmm. of vodka so that went on mm. for several years until mm-hmm. um, brother-in-law died. So I had to. I was desperate to get help. I would get on a bicycle, and uh, even though I was visually impaired, and and down to the lo- local liquor store uh-huh. to get a, I'd get a backpack and drive, get on home with about two or three mm-hmm. half gallons. Mm, my goodness. So the kind of the kind of blindness that you have is it just a completely severe reduction in any kind of acuity or can you see shapes or other things? Uh, yeah, I, I have good peripheral vision. This mm-hmm. is my central vision that's been blocked. Okay, so it was feasible for you to be able to ride down to that place. It's, it, it's not like you're in total darkness, but sounds to me like um, that was quite a loss for you. Uh, it must have been. How did you feel about it when it first happened? You, normally, people go through those seven stages of loss or grief. Yeah, I was in denial, and then for the onset, and then uh, I, I was uh, in complete depression after that because I totally lost my mm. my uh, independence, uh, not being able to drive or not mm-hmm. be able to function uh, as I normally did before. And this friend of mine that mm-hmm. helped me open the company, yeah. he, he, we had a very codependent relationship, and that played havoc on my drinking. Because mm-hmm. for me to cope with that relationship and run a business and and uh, maintain mm-hmm. my drinking habits, I had to drink just to get through the day. And my drinking increased. Mm-hmm. I was consuming over a case of vodka, half-gallon vodkas per month. So it's a real challenge for me to wow. keep that habit maintained. So the problems, were they starting to mount up as a result of all this drinking or at home and at work? Yes, I, I sold a business, but I worked for the the new owner for about 10 years, just answering phone dispatching service calls, what have you, until one day I, uh-huh. I woke up in, in the morning and, uh, and I had fallen uh-huh. off off the bed onto the floor and I tried to get up and then my wife heard me she was mm. getting ready for work and she had heard me and uh, I tried mm-hmm. to get up and I couldn't seem to grab the uh, the sheets to pull myself up on the bed and, but what had happened was uh, mm. she called 911 and she said I'll give you 30 seconds if you can't get up on the bed then I'm gonna call 911 turns out uh, the fireman looked at mm. me and they said we're gonna treat this as a stroke so they I got hmm. an ambulance ride to the Methodist Hospital and where they treated me for stroke. I, I guess mm-hmm. 
jokingly, I say I had a stroke of luck because I ended up at the Methodist because they, they were one of the top hospitals in the nation for treating stroke patients. What year was that? You, you lost your eyesight, you said, in 90... 97. 97. And when, when did this occur, the, the stroke? Uh, January of 2007. Okay, so, so 10 years. 10 years, I, wow. I, I drank, nearly drank myself to death, and it was almost successful. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying this show, I invite you to check out the Big Book Podcast, the free audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging and inspiring word-for-word reading of all 11 chapters and personal stories, including more than 50 original stories that were left out of the third and fourth editions. If you've never read the first or second editions, these amazing stories will be brand new to you. The Big Book Podcast is read by Howard L., who receives no compensation for this vital service work. Subscribe to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and search for Big Book Podcast. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. Or you can visit BigBookPodcast.com and listen there, and share it with your friends, sponsees, and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the big book they ever hear. And we're back. To what extent had the loss of your eyesight affect your drinking? Did you drink more as a result of that, or you just continued on the same path? I was angry, uh, felt sorry for myself, and um, couldn't give, forgive myself. And mm. what, what couldn't you forgive yourself of? For allowing me to get into that shape. Oh, yeah. Having a stroke was a total surprise because there was... My dad never had a stroke or heart trouble or anything like that. It was a complete shock to me. Mm-hmm. It was just absolutely devastating. So your dad was an alcoholic and drank maybe like you did, but he never had those consequences, did he? Uh, he had a wet brain in his later years, yeah. Oh, he did? Yeah, he was carried off to the hospital, and then huh. my sister told me he was never going to be able to come back home. And, and uh, I walked in the backyard, and I just I started to cry. I looked up at the sky, and I said, I'm never going to be able to have... Bandel Wolves with my dad again. That's what came to my mind. Oh. How old were you when he passed? Um, it was 1999, so... Okay, so you, you were uh, well on your way to becoming an alcoholic when, when your dad passed. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Did you draw a connection between your dad's drinking or was that something that was not related to your drinking? How did you see that? Well... I, I guess I thought, and my wife thought too, uh, you know, like father, like son, you're going to be like your dad, you're going to be like your oldest brother. Mm-hmm. My oldest brother in California never could keep a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he became mm-hmm. unemployable because he couldn't, he had his license, driver's license removed. And so it was in the mm-hmm. family, and except my brother up in Canada who's still there, uh, he never took the drinking. Mm-hmm. He can't took to work and he worked excessively. So in a lot of families, it seems to be almost genetic. In other families, it's a learned behavior. And then in some families like mine, my, neither mm-hmm. of my parents ever drank. And yet I became the alcoholic and drug addict. Well, one of about two or three mm-hmm. of us in the family. Um, so 2007, then you have this uh, stroke, you go to Methodist. What did they tell you about the connection between the drinking and the stroke? Well, they, they had pretty much uh, diagnosed that the problem was my drinking because it had enlarged my heart, which consequently uh, uh-huh. burst a, a vessel in uh, a blood vessel in my brain, which caused a stroke. Hmm. But I came home after about four weeks in the hospital and therapy and such, uh, and I went straight back to drinking. I, I still hadn't reached my bottom yet. I still was determined to go back to my doings. And even though the doctor at the hospital told me that, that you need to do something about that, and I wouldn't hear of it. Was he that mild about it? I mean, did he say you should do something about that? Or did he give you one of those ultimatums? Like, if you don't stop, some really bad stuff's going to happen. Uh, she didn't come across as being very adamant that way. She just said, hey, if you don't stop do something about your drinking, you're... You're going to poison your body and, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and mm-hmm. the writings on, handwriting's on the wall, so to speak. Most people that I've known 
who have been alcoholic and become part of AA and reformat their lives into one of sobriety, they don't have to deal with the physical consequences or physical remnants of their drinking while they're sober and as they move forward with their sobriety. But your case was that you had a stroke that the doc said were directly related to your drinking. Yeah, and it affected my left side, so I have spasticity today. So I'm mm-hmm. able to use my left hand, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm very stiff and sore. I'm in pain basically 24-7 and just mm-hmm. cope with some very mild, you know, over-the-counter medication, Advil and such. Yeah, I remember when I would see you on Sunday nights, and I always like to ask you what what your one to ten pain was, and uh, just so I could get a a little bit of a report on how you were feeling that day. And there were more times than not that you were seven yeah. or above. And so you're you're living with this the remnants of the stroke. You're living with pain every day, but you still continue to drink. So where was this turning point, or where was the crash and burn for you, or when did that happen? Well, ten months after um, after my stroke. I was continuing to drink, and uh, then I had a seizure. They called 911 because they thought I was having another stroke, and they sent me to the hospital. I went to find out that I had a seizure, and they gave me some pills for that and released me the next day. And um, So I remember the the, um, nurse practitioner for my neurologist said, so, Charles, what's it going to be? Is it going to be AA or, or what? I remember that vividly in my mind, hmm. so that kind of planted the seeds, so to speak. But uh-huh. uh, went home and I kept drinking, because I, I said to myself, "Dodge another bullet." You know, I got a pill to take care of the seizures now. I can go on and keep drinking. That sounds like alcoholic logic to me. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got the pills. No need to worry. So you did that. So you took the pills and just went back to the bottle at that point or after the bottle till one night uh the new cocktail of the pills and and the vodka left me almost uh well i i laid down on the floor in the foyer and i and i couldn't get up Uh anymore it affected my my spine where i couldn't get any control of my legs or get any strength out of them myself i can't let my wife Mm -hmm. walk in here and see me on the floor like this she was out for that evening and uh so i Mm -hmm. forced myself to get up and i waddled down the hallway to my chair and collapsed in my chair and i said god i need your help and that was the turning point the next morning Mm -hmm. i had already interviewed with the treatment center and uh, so mm-hmm. that was my first call i booked myself in for for a check-in the following tuesday mm-hmm. was that your last drink uh when that that evening it wasn't my last drink because i still had two bottles of wine that i had hand carried from italy and i wasn't about to give those to my daughters i i had to consume those uh-huh <laughs> got to get rid of what you have so you how long did you spend in the treatment center uh, actually, it's about a week, and they they detoxed oh. me, and uh, everything went well. And um, by that time, I was committed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had uh, decided mm. that this is the end of the road, and I, I had met some friends that uh, mm-hmm. were in in the AA program, so I had already had an idea mm-hmm. or had a vision in my mind that if I stopped drinking, I could be or do what they're doing and just having a good time in life. And so that gave me inspiration to do it. So that gave you some inspiration about AA. When when you were in, uh, when you got out of treatment, did you continue on with intensive outpatient, uh, IOP, or? Yes. That was the program I went into was the IOP. In, in-house de- for detoxing uh-huh. for about less than a week, and then I did the IOP for 13 weeks or whatever it was back then. Yeah, and that was sufficient to kind of launch you on the track that almost all roads lead to AA when you're in that sort of situation, right? Yeah, I was left with uh, four rules. Uh, uh, That is, uh, go to meetings, get a sponsor, and hang around with sober people. And I went to an AA meeting on a Saturday night, my first AA meeting, and uh, Mm -hmm. that's where I met my sponsor, and... uh, he started carrying me to, I wanted to visit the um, Holy Name Retreat Center for an AA meeting because I heard good things. 
thoughts about it, and uh, that's how I ended up getting there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember him him taking you week after week. He that service work that he did was, I guess, invaluable in your life, huh? It was, yeah. Because I don't know that I would have continued, but my wife was very supportive. Once I had uh, surrendered, yeah, uh, she was very supportive in getting me to the treatment center and to my AA mm-hmm. meetings. Because I I joined, I was going to about three or four AA meetings. Uh, a week. Mm-hmm. What were your first meetings of AA like? Uh, did you feel welcome? Uh, were you attracted or repulsed? What What was your thinking in the early days of AA? Well, since I heard good things about the AA program and from this friend that I had met through a, a gardening program, she said, well, this is where I go. And me and my, my husband are, are part of the program. And She'd been sober for so many years, and uh, I felt very comfortable to my first meeting. It was very dark in the room that night, and uh, I was very nervous. Mm -hmm. I had to introduce myself. I introduced myself twice Mm -hmm. because I didn't know what else to say. Hmm. So uh, my sponsor brought me to uh, the Holy Names, and and, uh, I was just uh, taken aback by the camaraderie of the group at Holy Names uh, meeting on Sunday night. And uh, everybody was back slapping, laughing, and talking, and handshaking. And and I said, God, this is too much. And I said to myself, and then a calmness came to me during the meeting as I was hearing people sharing. It's kind of like this voice came in my mind that told me, this is where you need to be. Mm-hmm. And then... From there on, I was convinced mm. I, I embraced the program and got with it. That I can't think of a better meeting to have gone to for your, your second meeting or first, whatever. That meeting, it's a men's meeting. It's one of the oldest men's meetings west of the Mississippi. I've been going to it for well over 30 years, and it's been a cornerstone. I, I hardly ever miss, even Super Bowl Sundays, I never miss uh, if I can if I can help it. Of course, now with COVID, we're meeting online, but that is one meeting where uh, men's stories are uh, amazing like yours. We all look out for each other, and I can't think of a better place for your second meeting. So how did you feel about whether or not the program would work? Did you have any sense that maybe you could do it for a while and then go back to drinking? Well, maybe a little tad bit of that thinking was in my back of my mind but i met this other person in in one of the meetings mm-hmm. i was attending and and his share was like kind of went like this he says i came into the program with thinking i had a drinking problem but only to discover that i had a thinking problem and that made a huge uh, impact on me saying that i had to rewire mm-hmm. myself to uh, to think properly and I learned I got a lot of wisdom from the Sunday night meeting lots yeah. of good wisdom from the Sunday night meeting it seemed like every time yeah. I would come I learned something that was applicable to myself yeah and I've, and I've heard you share over the years that about that and it's always seemed very clear to me that you were getting it I I really admire you for that let me ask you about how did you feel about the God part of the program obviously you reached out to God for help and you got it what was the spiritual part of the program like for you? Oh, I was raised Catholic, but later on in high school, I got friendly with the school chaplain. He was a Catholic priest, and he got me to go to a a retreat one time, and and, uh, I got a I, I would have to say I had what we co- refer to as a spiritual awakening during that thing. So I had a great amount of faith mm-hmm. after that. So turning to my higher power or understanding steps one, two, and three were I got it already. Like I, I, I knew mm-hmm. my higher power. I had a relationship with my higher power. Alcohol was mm-hmm. acting as a shield between me and my higher power. And coming to these meetings and getting mm-hmm. back to being acquainted with my higher power, uh, things would work out much better. Yeah, I'm sure they would. And a lot of people don't come to the program with that kind of spiritual undergirding, but it sounds to me like that was that was helpful for you. And of course, I know your sponsor. I know he's very he's a he's got a, he has a great sponsor, and um, I I've known him all these years, and I know that he sponsored a lot of different guys, most if not all of whom are still sober to this day. So, how long did it take for you to work through the twelve steps? Well. Um... Uh, just a few months uh, to get through it, but uh, 
I actually, uh, later on, as I matured in the program, uh, went back to, I had mm -hmm. another sponsor, and, uh, and I went back to revisit, redo my mm -hmm. fourth step, because I thought I had, I was missing something, and, and I heard people refer to the fourth step over mm -hmm. and over again, I felt I wanted to go back and redo it in detail, and I should sit down and write it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did that work out? Excellent. Yeah, I got to learn a lot about myself and my fears. And yeah, well, that's that's important. And what I learned about doing a fourth step early on and have seen over and over throughout the years has been that first fourth step, for as thorough as I could be at the time, I still felt like there might be stuff I was missing, but my sponsor said, just do as much as you can get to right now. And what I found was over the years, more was revealed. Uh, and I ended up having to do several different fourth steps as things became clearer or I had more memories of, of the past. So, Yeah, that sounds like what I've experienced, too. Yeah, it sounds the same way. So let me ask you, um, between your sobriety date and today, can you think of any times that really tested or tried your sobriety when maybe you were looking at a drink being a solution or maybe romance the idea of going back and drinking again? Uh, there's been some times it, it kind of seems to go with my level of depression. I, I, uh, I see a good psychiatrist, so I felt like I was in good hands. He would give me the right meds. Mm -hmm. That's balanced me out. But sometimes, occasionally, it mm -hmm. just I've learned to accept depression as part of my alcoholism and 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 embrace it and and go forward from there. Mm -hmm. But I, I but the program it keeps me accountable. I mean between my sponsor yeah. and coming to the meetings i go to about five or six meetings a week now and uh, mm -hmm. and uh that keeps me mm -hmm. on the beam i get it i get it well i remember chuck you and i spoke about clinical depression because i was diagnosed with it uh well over 30 years ago um most of the symptoms were masked by the fact that before i stopped drinking i was depressed all the time and uh, once the alcohol was gone, it took me a, a few years to realize that the depression wasn't going away by singing happy songs or redoing a fourth step or making a gratitude list. It, it turned out to be a, an actual medical situation. So those meds and the psych, psychiatric care and other things over the years has made a big difference in my life. And I'm not shy about telling people that if you've got a medical condition called clinical depression and you're an alcoholic, you need to be seeing a doctor probably about that. And uh, Absolutely. Yeah, so it sounds to me like, like you're, you're staying on that track. Yes, I, I saw a therapist for about 15 years, and, and it took two and a half years of seeing her mm -hmm. uh, before I finally conceded and had a stroke and, and, and joined the program later on. Hmm. What kind of things do you do, Chuck? You mentioned a lot of a lot of meetings, and I'm a big believer that meeting meetings are absolutely crucial to not only sobriety but an enrichment of life. I wondered what kind of things that you do to keep your program fresh and and vibrant. Go to meetings. Uh, yeah. Uh, try, I have a sponsee that I work with. Keep in touch with him, and mm -hmm. and I call a couple of people in the program. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, read the book um now starting to enjoy your your podcast on the book mm-hmm good those are all good things the service work of being a sponsor how have you found that has affected your own serenity and your own program wonderful uh, especially after the guy that i'm sponsoring now he went through about three different sponsors and always kept yeah. dropping out he'd go to step four and finally cut out relapse and mm -hmm. And now, now he's been in the program for six straight years, and he's doing well. It makes me feel like I've got something to offer. Well, yeah, and throughout, hasn't it enriched your life and helped you stay sober? Yes, and, and it's greatly improved our my marriage, marital relationship. My wife, like I mentioned earlier, she is a great supporter of my program, and she always made sure I got to all the meetings that I want to, no matter no matter what complications we had with dinner time, et cetera. She'd always help me out to do that. That's so important. Uh, I, and it 
to me, that's one of the greatest gifts of sobriety in my life, too, is that I'm able to sustain a marital relationship for almost, we've been married almost 35 years. Wow. So you, you're coming up on how many? 40 uh, in this year. 40, my goodness. Okay, so. It must have been an act of God or something, or I just purely got lucky and met the right woman because she's never given up on me. So uh, I feel fortunate for that and grateful. Yeah, that's that's something to be grateful to God every single day of our lives, Chuck. I, I do wake up and in my morning prayers, I do thank him for that very thing. And it's so important to have that kind of support, but also the love that sustains you through. And I often think had I not stopped when I did, I probably would have died, but I don't know how much longer my wife would have stuck with me, but I'm glad she did. So, well, um, we're almost wrapping up here. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, what do you tell newcomers when, when you're trying to tell them about the program? And do you ever encounter any resistance from them because you've been sober double-digit years, and you know how could you relate? Uh, what would you tell a newcomer about AA? Well, I think I, I would tell them right off the bat that it's a pleasure to meet meet you, and uh, gosh, I, you make me reminisce back to my early days in AA, and so I'm very happy to speak with you. And uh, if you're looking for a sponsor, I'd be glad to work with you. If you're not sure about who you want to sponsor you, then I'll be, be glad to be your temporary sponsor until you, you do decide. And I mean, we'll have somebody to talk to. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's a great thing to be able to tell a newcomer, especially these days. And that was one of the final things I wanted to discuss with you. And that was how you're feeling during this time of COVID with the Zoom meetings and how that's impacted your program. Actually, the COVID, the, the isolation, the COVID didn't really bother me mm-hmm. too much. Uh, I was always a, a loner before that. But it it exposed me to more meetings and uh, able to have times. uh, 11th step is an important Mm -hmm. step for me. It's to prayer and meditation. I I Mm. spend a lot of time either laying down or meditating, working that program for me. Uh, Being in AA has Mm. really given me a sense of accomplishment. But more important, uh, a real relationship with my higher power and, and I'm able to do other things, achieve other things. I mentioned to you on our mm-hmm. previous phone call that I play guitar and uh, I used to play guitar, but when I lost my left hand, I met somebody that taught me how to pl- play guitar one-handed with my right hand only. And mm-hmm. that's been a real blessing. And uh, so music is my other, uh, other than meditation, my other way of just staying on the beam. Wow, that's wonderful. So you're even with the the limited movement on your left side, you can still get back to playing the guitar. Probably totally different than you did when you were a kid, right? Yeah. But the enjoyment sounds to me like you're enjoying the heck out of it, huh? Yes. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That's such a wonderful thing. Such a wonderful thing. And as far as the ease of going to meetings, what have you found that your number of meetings you're going to has increased since uh, Zoom came along? Yes, I was only going to uh, about three meetings a week, and uh, mm-hmm. and then depending on on my transportation, uh, sometimes less. But uh, since uh, since COVID has happened in the Zoom meetings, I steadily go to five or six meetings per week. These Zoom meetings have just made it so easy to be able to go to meetings any time of day or night almost anywhere in the world. I've really appreciated getting to know people in different parts of the world. Well, Chuck, this has been a real joy to be able to sit down with you today and get to know you so much better than I think I ever, I don't know if if I hadn't done this, you and I probably could have gotten together over a cup of coffee and talked, but knowing that there were certain things that I just was interested in knowing about you that you've revealed today, I appreciate your candor and your openness and your willingness to do this. And I believe that every interview done is going to help somebody somewhere, maybe many people, but if it helps even one person, then it will have, it will have been a triumph for you. And so I want to say, I love you and God bless you. And you're an inspiration because you you've encountered a lot before you got sober and you've made it through some very very difficult times in life staying sober and i would suggest that anybody who's having a problem or feeling sorry for themselves 
you know, take a listen to this kind of story and it might make you feel a little bit more willing to do the work. So. Well, thank you, Howard. And it's been a real privilege for this opportunity to do this with you. And uh, I hope it helps somebody out there in the future. Yeah. Maybe I something that might have just triggered somebody to uh, stay sober. Yeah, and I'm sure it will. Again, many thanks for your for your time today, Chuck. Well, thank you. I appreciate your friendship, Howard. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. I'm thankful you tuned in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and other podcast providers. I'd be grateful if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, recoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at recoveryinterviews.com. By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.